Voices of Pim Better Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by John Hyam. He wrote 360 Degrees Longitude, One Family's Journey Around the World. I was first introduced to John in his book through my buddy Alex Parker. I think it was about six years ago that he was teaching this book as part of his English curriculum for a middle school class. I was going through my bookshelf the other day, and I came across uh, John's work, and I thought, why don't I reach out to him? So I went to his website at 360degreeslongitude.com, used the contact, and I think he got back to me within a day. Um, super cool guy, really humble, really smart. And uh, I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Again, you can go to his website if you're interested in reaching out to him. He also replies to a lot of the comments on his blog posts. But he has a, you know, a really comprehensive list of information about the trip, a detailed breakdown of the budget. There's pictures. There's interesting anecdotes and stories and uh some of it's serious, some of it's funny, so uh, I definitely recommend checking that out. Similar to what I did with uh, Graham Holiday's Eating Vietnam and Eating Korea, I'm going to give away five copies of John's book. So the way that you can be entered into that running is either tweet out this episode, post about it on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, put it into a message board comment or post, take a screenshot of that, and email it to me at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. In, I don't know, maybe about two weeks, I'll go through, see how many submissions I have. Um, if there's too many that I have to do this randomly, then I'll, I'll, I'll put those names into a hat and, and pick them out randomly. If it's just a few, well then, you know, those are the people that get the book. So again, that is thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. I want to preface this episode with, I have some new equipment and I tested it out prior to the episode and everything looked like it was going fine. And then the second I called John and started recording, all my levels looked crazy. The volume was coming in really hot and I was kind of panicking in my head as I was trying to concentrate and talk to John. So I don't know if I was on my best game, but uh, John did a terrific job in, in our conversation. And as always... If this episode sounds good to you, which I think uh, I think that it will, that is a hundred percent due to the wizard, uh, my my sound guy Brian Goldsman. Um, that's why we pay him the big bucks. Actually, we don't pay him. So sponsors, please help me pay Brian. Reach out to me at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. All right, that's it for the intro. Listen to this episode with John. Let me know what you think. Uh, I really think that you'll enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Catch you next time. All right, so we are rolling, and today I have John Hyam on the podcast. John is the author of 360 Degrees Longitude, One Family's Journey Around the World. So, John, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me, Tim. So I'm really excited to have you on. Um, I first heard about you when I was working in a school and a teacher had ordered a class copy of your novel. And I was at a point where I had just started a career and I hadn't traveled a whole lot yet, but it was a dream of mine. And I was kind of reserved to the fact that if I wanted to live a life of travel, I would have to do so as like a single person without any kids. And so your book is really cool because it shows us that uh, you can absolutely manage this with, with two kids and uh, a career and a family. So first I want to thank you just for, for, uh, for writing the book. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, certainly possible to do with kids uh, a little harder, but uh, um, not impossible for sure. I'm, and I will also say that I am far from the only person who's done this. Okay, so um, let's start with, I should say that your website is really comprehensive and the website is 360 degrees longitude. So it was difficult to kind of come up with some questions that would be original and not be repetitive. But let's set a little bit of a background for anyone who hasn't read the novel or perhaps hasn't heard of you so far. Um, okay. Why did you and your family decide that you were going to do this trip? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, to really get the understanding of why we decided to do this, you need to go back to 1993. My wife and I have, were only newlyweds, and by that I mean married a couple of years without children. And my, we both came into the marriage loving to travel. And we did a little bit of traveling, just the two of us. But in 1993, the company that I worked for sent me to Japan for a year, with my wife, of course, and we lived in Japan for a year. And that was such a watershed year for us. We drew much closer together, um, and we had to overcome a few hardships, getting over the cultural differences in language uh, that, you know, you might... Uh, uh, be had by living in such a foreign culture that it pulled us together. And it was such a watershed year for us that we realized that when we had children and when they were old enough that we wanted to replicate the experience with them. And so in 1993, the idea was hatched, and this was years before we had children that we would take our children and live overseas for a year. But as children came onto the scene, and as we started to plan where we might go for, uh, to live for a year, we couldn't decide on any one place. And so we were then gonna live in four different places for three months each. And it just kept evolving into this trip that uh, was uh, a trip around the world where we we didn't stop for more than just a few days in any one place. So that's, that was the genesis of the trip was um, my wife and I living overseas for a year and realizing it was such a powerful experience and we wanted to share that with our children. Now, one of the things that I've seen people comment on the most um, on your website is, and, and you answered this in the FAQs as well, 
like, is it a smart idea to, to pull your kids out of school for a year, essentially, and to homeschool them? So I wondered if you could um, kind of summarize that for us briefly and tell us what you think the impact of the trip on your kids' education was. Okay. Um, first, let me say that um, this trip that we took and the book that I wrote was several years ago. In fact, it was uh, almost 12 years ago that we took this trip. And so I now have the advantage of looking back over time and seeing what impact it had on, on my kids. As far as education, um, I'm going to use the phrase, uh, borrow a phrase from uh, some friends of ours who also did something similar, and that is, no harm done. Uh, taking the kids out of school for a year, no harm done. Uh, and by that, I mean that they were able to come back, get right back into the grade that they, uh, that they would have been in, so they stayed with their peers. Um, my daughter uh, might have struggled a little bit initially, um, and my son as well, a little bit initially getting back into school, getting back into the swing of things with homework every night, but it certainly wasn't because of academics. Um, so uh, taking a year off at the age that we took it, uh, my children were 8 and 11 at the time, um, it was a good, that was a good time, uh, and uh, academically they were able to stay with their peers no problem. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you, I'm going to quote one thing that you wrote. Um, you said, part of the kids' education during our year was to have them read something about the places we were to visit. Hopefully this would make an impression on them that would last a lifetime. Obviously they haven't lived a, lived a lifetime yet, but they are, I believe, young adults now. So can you see anything in them now that uh, is reflective of something that they learned on the trip? I like to think so. I mean, it's really, I, I come from a science and engineering background, and so I don't have a control group, so to speak. I don't have, a, you know, an identical set of children that didn't go, so it's hard for me to compare. But they are different from their peers. Uh, I do think that they look at worldviews much more broadly and have an open, uh, more open mind um, about uh, worldviews than than many of their peers. And this was very apparent when we first came home, and they were, you know, at the time nine and twelve, um, that uh, they had a different view of the world than most nine and twelve year olds. So um, it it was certainly an education for them uh, in a non traditional sense to learn about the world. Um, and I do think that that has served them well in, as growing up, uh, through their growing up years. I, I like this, I've always said, and this, this is, goes before we actually took the trip, I like to say that this whole around the world trip with my children was a 20 year experiment in human development. And now that we've been home about 10 years, uh, we're about halfway through that. And, um, I like to think that, yes, it did make a positive impact um, on my children's lives and how they view the world. I love that. Um, I don't, I'm not going to put you on the spot with um, a political question per se, 
But I do wonder, you know, with everything that we see in the news now, it seems that we are taking more of an American America first uh, stance. And obviously there's all this, you know, uh, all this to do about the travel ban and everything like that. I wonder if your kids maybe have a, have a softer stance on that and more of an appreciative view for a place like the Middle East where they were able to travel to when they were young. Oh, absolutely. It, it absolutely has made an impact and it, and it's softened any hard edges, if you will. I, you know, one of the experiences that I describe in the book is when we first went to the Middle East, we, we tiptoed into this trip. And, and I designed the trip, I engineered the trip, if you will, specifically so that we would start in a place that was easy, that was Europe, and go to, progressively go to places that were harder to travel in, the Middle East and Africa. And when we, when we went on the trip, it wasn't too many years after 9-11, and I remember going into uh, Turkey and also into the Arabian Peninsula for the first time and being extremely nervous uh, about um, going into such places with my children. And my, my, I'm just going to say that my mother was beside herself that I would take her grandchildren into these, these places. But it didn't take me very long to realize that um, if you look at the world through the lens of news, that it's just going to scare the bejeebers out of you. But when you go to these places and meet people, um, people are friendly and open and welcoming everywhere you go, especially if you have kids in tow. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've said before, and I'd, I'd like to repeat that, you know, I believe that travel can change people and change the world. And that's a really bold statement. And I, I believe it. I, if I could wave my Harry Potter wand, if you will, <laughs> it would be that everybody could have the experience of traveling. And I think it would help solve a lot of world issues that we have now. I can think about when when I was a kid and I was uh, obsessed with Indiana Jones, and I don't want to say that like that Indiana Jones is necessarily a travel story, and I think that the places he went and the people he encountered they were kind of caricatures of the people who would uh, be in the places that he visited. But when I was a kid, I would daydream about some of the things that your kids got to do like riding on an elephant or um, sleeping in the desert. So are, are, do they understand how amazing this was? And are, are they appreciative of the fact that they have two badass parents that let them do this? <laughs> oh, uh, they didn't. I don't think they did at the time, um, but they, they do now. I mean, as I, as from the perspective of a, semi-mature formal, you know, uh, excuse me, a semi-mature, completely formed adult, I look back on my parents, and I now have an appreciation for some of the things that they did that I did not appreciate when I was living under their roof. And so now my children are coming to the age where they, you know, they're, they're uh, left home and they're out 
in the world and not living under the mom and dad's roof. And yes, they now appreciate much more um, some of the things that that they were able to experience um, that their their peers didn't. I, and I don't mean to say that they didn't appreciate the fact that they were able to travel around the world for a year at the time or shortly thereafter. But I really believe that now that they are in their early 20s, that um, they're starting to appreciate some of these things much, much more than um, at the, than they were at the time or shortly thereafter. So let's talk about then uh, some of those things, some of the places that, that you've been to. Um, because, I mean, you were in Cambodia, you saw the Killing Fields, the Torture Museum, you hiked the Great Wall of China. Like I said, the kids got to sleep out in the desert. Is there a standout experience or place that when you reflect back on this year of traveling that stands out to you? Well, there, there are a number of uh, standout events, and it, you've touched on a couple of them. Um, we went, when we were in Poland, we went to um, Auschwitz, and my daughter had broken her leg, and this is a story that we tell in the book, right? Yeah. But my daughter had broken her leg, and it was a hot day in July or August, I can't remember, but it was a hot day, and my daughter had a broken leg, and it was crowded in Auschwitz. And I really wanted the kids to have this, this oh my gosh moment, all these horrible things happened in, in Auschwitz, and just, you know, almost rubbed their face in it that, you know, how lucky they were to be born in a time and a place where there wasn't war. But like I said, it was my daughter had a broken leg. I had a carrier on, in my arms or on my shoulders when we went up and down stairs. It was hot. It was crowded. And we just did not have that experience in Auschwitz. And the kids were actually, I'm going to say, a little bit whiny. And I felt really bad that I did not have the experience in Auschwitz that I wanted to have. Now you fast forward six months when we had some difficult travel uh, experiences behind us. When we were in Poland, we we're still in Europe, but we'd have some difficult experiences, uh, some uh, rubbed shoulders with a lot of poverty. And six months later, we're in Cambodia. Mm. And in Cambodia, the, the, the poverty is really in your face. And not only that, the signs from war are still there. There's a lot of amputees and a lot of amputee children because of landmines and things like that. So it's really in your face. And so when we were at the killing fields, you know, there are, you can walk along those paths and they're really well-worn paths and you can see human bones sticking up through the dirt. And there is a massive pile of human skulls. And again, when you go to the torture museum in Phnom Penh, um, there was a man there who had been a victim of that torture facility, and he had had acid thrown in his face, and he just had horribly disfigured. And the, the contrast between Auschwitz and the experiences we had in Cambodia was really stark, 180 degrees uh, difference between the two experiences for, for not just for myself, but also for my children. And it finally hit them in a way that and it made a visceral impact on them uh, the way I had hoped that 
you know, they, uh, they, they saw the results of war and they became much more sensitized to uh, some of the things that had happened, uh, you know, before they were ever born. So um, I, 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 uh, I was grateful to have both experiences at Auschwitz and also in Cambodia um, because it not, was not just a contrast for me, but it was a contrast for them too because they, they talked about that. Um, over the years, how they felt differently in the two places. Yeah, that's, that is really incredible. I, I'm pretty sure that when I was in elementary school, I didn't even learn about Cambodia. Um, so for them to have that experience, that to me, that's more education than they would have got, you know, in that year of uh, public school anyway. Well, uh, it's interesting you'd make that comment because it was only a week or two later uh, after Cambodia that we were in Thailand. And uh, we had uh, come, we were traveling with uh, some uh, girls from Denmark that were, um, they were college age students. And they had asked us some other places we'd been, we'd explained Cambodia. And I always remember their reaction is Cambodia, where is that? And what's their, what's so special about Cambodia? And these were girls in college and wow. you know all the events of Cambodia happened before they were ever born but they were still completely ignorant about the genocide in Cambodia um, so yeah uh, a lot of bad things happen <laughs> and there's a great big world out there and I'm really grateful I was able to share a little slice of, with my children to help them understand you know, that they were born into a house of privilege. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a wealthy man, but anybody who lives in North America and has a roof over their head at, at night is, lives in a house of privilege. <laughs> so I was grateful to be able to uh, help them see that. Wow, I love that. Um, so there's a really cool uh, Google Earth companion to go along with the book. And just judging on the time that you took the trip, I'm wondering how you were able to link up with Google and with Google Earth, considering it was still a pretty new technology at that time. It was a very new technology at the time. Um, I'm just a nerd. What can I say? <laughs> I, I, I came home from that trip, and I was playing around with Google Earth, and I just knew that the only way to really tell my story was to be able to let people see the, some of those places, drill down to those places where the pictures were taken, hear a few stories about where things happened, uh, and link it up to Google Earth. So um, I live in Mountain View, California, and Google's headquarters are in Mountain View, California, and it wasn't too difficult for me to find a friend of a friend who um, could at least get me a little bit of help at, from uh, some of the people who worked with Google Earth. And so um, I did do most of the coding uh, that, you know, if you download the Google Earth companion layer, I did do most of the coding myself, but I, you know, it was after like an hour tutorial from some of uh, the Googlers. And then after that, um, I had some help cleaning it up to make it look like a professional poli uh, polished um, piece of software. But, um, yeah, I just knew 
that those two things, you know, a travel story and Google Earth, where those were things that were meant to go together. Now, I want to talk about budgeting a little bit, and I'm going to try to keep myself from, from going too far off track. But on your website, you have a really comprehensive uh, breakdown of your budget, almost like to the dollar. <laughs> hey, I'm a numbers guy. <laughs> and um, I think maybe to young people or to people who don't know what it is to support a family of four and, and pay rent or a mortgage and food, the number looks kind of high. And I even saw yeah. that there were, there were comments on your, on your website, and you're quite accessible through the website, so you reply to comments. And I do really like that you are unapologetic about the fact that, like, yes, this is what it cost. We didn't, like, live above our means on this trip, but when there were things we wanted to do, we did them. Um, and I just think it's interesting because I had uh, a couple episodes back, I had a woman named Alex who travels in a van. And one of the things that we discussed is traveling either for a living or extensively traveling as a hobby seems really luxurious and fun and somewhat easy. And I think that that's a bit of misinformation when people put that out there because it's not so easy in the way that, I mean, in your book it shows like you were talking about when your daughter broke her leg or when things go wrong, but also in it's work in this sense that there's a lot of planning and it might not be as cheap as you would hope it would be. Um, right. But I'm wondering uh, if you could briefly talk about, and again, you do outline this in the book and on the website, so people should check that out, but um, how you were able as best as possible to keep your costs down. I think the best way to answer this question is that everybody has different tastes and different expectations. So years before we took this around the world trip, we did what I'm gonna call a prototype trip to the most expensive place that I could think of, and that was Switzerland. And we went to Switzerland for a month. And we went to Switzerland because we wanted to go, Switzerland's a beautiful country, there's lots of fun things to do. I wanted to go cycling in Switzerland and in Austria. Um, but one of the purposes of the trip was to figure out budget, how much money it was going to take for us to, to do this for a year. And so we went to Switzerland. We traveled like we thought we would travel on our around-the-world trip. And um, I used that. You know, we, did it, we did that for a month in Switzerland. And I used that as a guide to help me figure out how much it was going to cost us to travel uh, for a year. Uh, extrapolating for the fact that Switzerland's more expensive than Thailand, but um, I still came very close in the end between what I actually spent and what we budgeted. So you are absolutely correct that I have received a number of critiques from people who are quote-unquote travelers that said that oh my gosh, I can't believe you spent so much money. How could you possibly consider yourself a traveler because you spent so much money? Don't you know you can do that kind of travel on this, on X, and you spent 2X or 1.5X or whatever it is? And I, that sort of thing does make me bristle because it, it, it 
it it presupposes that what's right for me is what's right for them and vice versa. So we try to go on a budget that fit us uh, and fit our needs. We certainly did not go uh, uh, on a luxurious trip. We, uh, we stayed in hostels. We camped in tents. Uh, and uh, we took uh, local transportation when we were in uh, developing countries. Uh, we certainly could have spent easily triple, if not more, if we wanted to go, quote, unquote, luxurious. But I would say that unless you're willing to sleep outdoors all the time and live on rice and beans and not do some of the more interesting things in the places you're visiting, it would be difficult to go much less expensive than we did. Let me just give a couple examples. Sure. When we were in uh, Tanzania, we went on a African uh, game safari in the Serengeti that was quite expensive. But, um, you know, those sorts of things are expensive. You, you're not going to get into the Serengeti unless you're willing to spend, you know, on the order of $200 per person per day. So I wasn't going to go to Tanzania without going to the Serengeti. Right. Uh, and again, the Inca Trail. Uh, you're not going to get on the Inca Trail unless you take a, a guide, and uh, it, it's expensive. So uh, if you want to go to Machu Picchu and not hike the Inca Trail, yes, you can do it for less money. But we wanted to be able to experience some of the experiences that, we, that were available to us in the places we visited. And so that was part of our budget. Right. I think that's a, a really mature and, and measured outlook on it. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, Kenya next month, so I'm going to participate in my first safari, so I'm super, super excited about that. I think you will have a wonderful experience. I, we, uh, we were in Africa just a few months ago, and it's just a, uh, it's a great experience, um, and I think you'll love it. So I did want to ask about that. After this year-long trip, did you guys continue to travel as a unit? Um, now that your kids are older, do you still do that, or are you traveling with your wife? Uh, yes, we did, absolutely. Uh, we tried to go to some place at, uh, once a year uh, oh. after we came home from our trip. We weren't always able to do it. Um, sometimes it was once every 18 months. But uh, we went to several different places. We went back to Egypt. We are not back to, but we went to Egypt. We uh, hiked the Via Alpina, uh, which is a um, uh, similar to the Appalachian Trail in Europe, the Via Alpina. We hiked a portion of that. We did lots of things. But um, uh, we are a traveling family, and it's one of the things we've always enjoyed. Now, once my kids hit high school, it got to be more difficult. And when they got into college, it got even more difficult. And that's why, I, you know, we didn't actually hit every year they got older. And we just took our first trip with three of us instead of four of us last uh, over Christmas. So, and then my daughter's getting married 
<laughs> oh, wow, congrats. Yeah, thank you. In just a few months, so we may have been on, well, I, we, we did go on the last trip to where it's just the four of us because now when we travel, my future son-in-law will, will probably be coming with us. But um, the answer is yes, we absolutely continue to travel as a family. Okay. So I'm going to get to some kind of like rapid fire questions, but I wanted to ask one final one. And it's about writing in the process of writing. Um, I believe this is, this is the first book you put out. Is it the only one? It is the only book I've written. Um, I will say my wife jokingly says that, um, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right, right way to word this, but jokingly says that, um, if I want to write another book, then uh, <laughs> that'll be the end of us, something <laughs> like that. But um, it is a difficult experience to write a book. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that uh, it's an easy read, which works really well when, obviously, when you're teaching to a middle school class, which is what the teacher who had introduced me to the book was doing. But reading it as an adult, again, uh, you know, I'm not just trying to flatter you, but it was really interesting. And I love the, the perspective as some, uh, you know, someone with kids showing how not only is this possible, but perhaps is, it adds a, an additional level of enjoyment if you do have children. But um, so how long did it take you to write it? And uh, did you journal along the way? What was your process like? So I, I never thought I would be writing a book. Um, that was uh, an afterthought. I wrote a journal as we traveled. My two children wrote a journal as we traveled. My wife ends up did not write a journal, and and um, I, but she did help the children uh, when they wrote their journal. So um, I did use those three journals uh, as material research material when I went back and and wrote the book, but. When I came home from our trip, I would bump into friends at the line in the grocery store, or I would see friends at work, and they would say, John, how was your trip? And there just wasn't a satisfactory answer. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, this trip really changed me. I had traveled before this, but it was like a religious experience for me. And, you know, there just wasn't a satisfactory answer for, John, how was your trip? And so that's when I started thinking about pulling together everything and writing the book. And that's my response to, John, how was the trip was, here, here's, my, here's the book, this is how it was. So um, writing the book was, um, it was, I don't think there's a lonelier job than being a writer because you're all alone with your thoughts and with your computer when you're when you're writing and then at some point you're going to give your manuscript to an editor and they're going to ask you questions about what you wrote and they're going to say uh you know this could be worded better and it could even be sometimes almost antagonistic of you know this is not the message that you want your readers 
to come away with. You need to change everything about what you just said because of this, this, and this. So it's a difficult process to write a book. Um, it was very enjoyable. I am glad I did it, and I am thrilled that people pick it up and read it and they um, uh, and can connect with the story. But um, uh, the process of getting a publisher is really brutal. And I, in the uh, years since, I've had people come to me and ask me for advice about writing a book. And I, uh, I like to say that, you know, <laughs> you can dig your eyes out with a spoon or something like that. If you find that enjoyable, then writing a book is for you. Um, it's a difficult experience. Um, but it, it was very rewarding in the end to have it completed. And it's one of my proudest accomplishments. You know, I, I'm just going to say, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but, you know, I'm an aerospace engineer, successful aerospace engineer. I have 11 U.S. patents about different aspects of spacecraft oh, wow. design and, and so forth. But aside from raising two children into adulthood, and, you know, coming through that whole process unscathed, you know, raising my children being my proudest accomplishment, I would say that writing this book is, and, and having it to be something that I can be proud of, is um, one of my best accomplishments. You, at some point you mentioned something that, that just triggered something. Uh, I've done a couple of, like, month-long, or I think the most I've done was like five weeks in one shot, and when I returned to the States, it's weird because you mentioned it's almost like a religious experience. When I return, I find coming home, that transition to be pretty difficult. And you, you almost go into like a bit of a depression and you have to adjust back to life. What was that like for you after spending a whole year abroad? Wow. Wow. <laughs> Uh, difficult to put into words. So when we traveled, we had a family living in our home. And when we came back, they moved out. We moved back into our home. But when I got off the airplane uh, after coming home, I had rearranged to come back to my company, uh, the same company that I had left before we went on the trip. And I had arranged to come back. And the reason why I had arranged to come straight back was, you know, when, when we got home, I knew I was gonna have like less money in my checking account than it would take to pay my next mortgage payment. Cause you know, my wow. renters were, mo were moving out and I needed a paycheck. So I got off the plane literally at about 11 p.m. on a Sunday night and I was back in a cubicle at nine o'clock the next morning. Oh my God. <laughs> it was a really difficult transition for me. And I remember going to work every day that week, being apart from my family, where my, my thoughts and my heart were completely somewhere else. And I remember coming home and uh, on the Friday and being able to spend all weekend with them. And it's almost a joyous reunion. 
and then Sunday night thinking, oh my gosh, I gotta do it again. And uh, it was a really difficult transition for me. Now, my wife and children, they also had their own transitions and it's different than mine. Um, we came home in June, my children had all summer before uh, they had to go to school and my wife didn't go straight back to work like I did. You know, she came home and she saw her washing machine and, uh, you know, hot water out of the shower. <laughs> and it was just, she just like broke down and cried, not literally, but figuratively, broke down and cried at the side of her washer and dryer and so happy to have them again. Um, and my, my, my kids, you know, we had not been more than an arm's length from each other for a year. I mean, you know, we slept in the same room and, you know, on very rare occasions out, outside of, you know, each other's company for an entire year. And so when we came home, my kids could not sleep in their separate rooms. And so it was the longest time where they would, you know, go to their separate rooms. You know, they would like sleep in sleeping bags next to each other and that sort of thing. And they would, I remember when we came home, they said, wow, this house is so big. It was like the, it felt it felt odd to them. Wow. So we all had our different uh, uh, coming home experiences, but uh, I, I do think that mine was the most difficult because right. I went right back to work. Oh, my God. All right, I'm going to ask you a couple of like quick hit questions here before I let you go. Um, what country that you traveled to had the best food? The best food. Well, you know, I'm going to say Turkey. Um, and that might sound odd. You don't think of Turkey as being, uh, the, uh, you know, a culinary delight, for example. But when we were in Europe, we had traveled through Europe, and uh, then we went to Turkey from Europe. And when we were traveling in Europe, it was just too expensive for us to eat in restaurants. So we were always going to grocery stores and eating cold cuts and that sort of thing. Occasionally when we were at a hostel, we would be able to cook a hot meal. But, you know, for, for months, it was, uh, you know, cold cuts that had been in a backpack for most of the afternoon sort of thing. But when we got to Turkey, Turkey is far less expensive than Europe, and suddenly we were able to eat in restaurants and have a hot meal occasionally. And I just have great, fond memories of eating in restaurants in Turkey. Okay, very cool. What is one place you went to on your trip that you had to return to and did or really want to return to? Well, um, that would be uh, the Lachebrunnen Valley in Switzerland. Um, I had mentioned earlier that we had gone to Switzerland uh, before we went on our around-the-world trip. And on our first trip in Switzerland, uh, my children had planted some seeds from an apple they had been eating on this particular hiking trail in Switzerland. And so when we were going around the world, we went back to that spot and we saw there was maybe a tree growing there, but it had only been three or four years. And so 
a few more years later, we went back to Switzerland uh, to the Slotterbrunnen Valley to see if that really was a tree. And yes, there was a tree. And so, um, at least for me, the Lotterbrunnen Valley holds a kind of a special place because um, uh, for for many reasons. But one is the apple tree, and it was uh, it's just a really beautiful place, and it's one of my favorite places in the world. So that's one place that we we return to. Uh, after our trip. Very cool. I was going to ask, what is one place other than the United States that you would want to live? Is that the same place? Actually, uh, yeah. Um, that's on my bucket list, is to live in Switzerland for a year. Oh, cool. Uh, one country that you haven't been to that you want to go to? Oh, there's plenty. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear where we went, they say, what, you haven't been to Russia? You haven't been to <laughs> India? So those are two um, uh, that are right at the top of the list of places that we have yet to go to that we need to. Um, I want to go to Borneo, um, haven't, been, haven't been to Borneo, um, and Nepal. So there's, there's four countries that I haven't been to that are uh, definitely in the queue for next places to visit. Okay, and the final one I have for you is, in the book, uh, I love that your kids would read about the places that you were going to, and you would read a fair amount about the places that you're going to. Um, who is Who do you think is the best travel writer or travel TV personality um, that uh, you enjoy the most? Yikes. <laughs> I don't know if I have a favorite travel writer. I, I, I uh, um, you know, Bill Bryson comes to mind, mm. but there are so many others that I, I very much like. But I'm going to answer your question differently. Okay. And that is, there are a lot of children's books that are... Um, geared toward children, children's books that are geared to children, sorry, <laughs> but uh, that are geographic uh, specific, and there's a whole series of them. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the series, and I, I'm just, you know, trying to access memory, but... Was it The uh, Horrible Histories, John? Was it that? Well, Horrible Histories is, is one of them, but there's, there's another set that's actually written for... Hormal Histories is for, like, reluctant readers, for, and it works really well with young boys. Um, but those are very good, and I, I, I like them a lot. And I would read my kids' books, even though they're for children's books, I would read them. But there's a series of books that are for girls that are a step up from the Horrible Histories. Um, but uh, th there's one, uh, a book about, um, you know, uh, Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth and those, and it's a, it, it's a series about, um, it's mostly European history. I, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's been too long since I, and I'm kicking myself that I can't remember it. What we can do, John, um, is uh, after this, shoot me an email and I'll throw the name of that into the intro for the episode. Okay, okay. Okay, so... I'm going to recommend to everybody that you first read the book, 
uh, you'll know this by now if you're listening to this, that in the intro I'm going to do a little bit of a contest to give away a couple copies of the book as I did with Graham Holiday's Eating Vietnam and Eating Korea. I'm going to recommend that you go to 360degreeslongitude.com. Uh, again, it's really comprehensive. There's a lot of like how-tos and FAQs, and uh, I think a lot of really helpful information if you're looking to do a trip of this magnitude or even if you're looking to do some solo traveling. So, um, John, I want to thank you. Th again, this is super cool for me. Uh, I love that I have this platform to you know, uh, to, to read and to learn and then to, to, to talk to the people who are writing for me and, and educating me and things like that. So uh, thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. That is it for today. I want to say thank you to all of you for all of the support. Thank you to John, of course, for joining me today. Thank you to Brian Goldsman, as always. Thank you to Alex Parker. The novel series that John had some trouble remembering there at the end was the Young Royals series by Carolyn Meyer. I have some stickers for the podcast, and I'm not selling them, but if you are interested in obtaining one, you can shoot me a message or an email or something like that, and I'll mail that out to you for free. Some new listeners, I see Nigeria, I see Italy, and then I've got some new folks from uh, around New York. So thank you to you guys for the support. I really appreciate it. I'm working on a couple new ones that I'm hopefully going to do next week. I don't want to say what they are just yet, but uh, expect some cool content to come out soon. All right, catch you all next time. Mm -hmm.